meat demand is skyrocketing. So just telling people to eat less meat isn't gonna work. Instead, what we have to do is we have to create products that taste just as good or better, that cost the same or less than conventional meat products. And that's where you're gonna see this big paradigm shift unfolding. Hello everyone, my name is Sit Lali. And I am Ismail. In this episode, we are talking about alternative meat that is so similar to animal meat, you can hardly tell the difference. Sit Lali, why does this matter? Well, for starters, the world's population is expected to reach about 10 billion people by 2050. Several scientists are wondering, how will we feed a growing population a diet that is both healthy and will prevent the demise of this beautiful blue planet we live on. It turns out we know the answer already, a largely plant-based diet. But getting people on board is a challenge. Humans can be quite short-sighted. This is where alternative proteins like alternative meat, eggs, and dairy come in. We are also joined by the lovely Amy Huang, University Research Manager at the Good Food Institute. She will talk directly to college students about their important role in the growing field of alternative proteins. So stick around. We hope that by the end of this episode, you will see your plate a little bit differently. Lali and I have actually known each other for a while, and something that we share in common is that we are both vegetarian. I remember vividly that I became vegetarian off a of dare and just continued after learning more about the harm caused by the meat industry. Lali, can you recount your experience of turning vegetarian? Yeah, I was about 13 years old, and I remember my mom took me to the doctor, and the doctor said that I had to eat chicken or fish to be healthy, which totally wasn't true, and so I continued being vegetarian. Then later in college, I joined this class called Food and Society, and that's where I really became aware of the environmental impacts of factory farming and the concept of planetary boundaries. You've looked into that, right, Ismael? You raised a very interesting point about the environment and the food you consume. Leading a plant-based diet has system-wide planetary benefits, as Johan Rockström explained in the Eat Lancet Lunch Lecture in the University of Oslo, Oslo, uh, January 17, 2019. We've come to a point where the food system actually is such a large force that has entered the Anthropocene. We're now in a geological epoch where we as humanity constitute the largest force of change on planet Earth, and food is the single largest contributor to escalating environmental pressures. Our current meat-based global food system is failing and having a dangerous toll on the environment and public health. This is most notable within factory farming. Not only does factory farming require substantial land for maintaining animals, causing the destruction of their environment, Scientists say that factory farming has created a perfect storm for pandemics. According to a professor of evolutionary genetics, selective breeding of livestock has caused severe inbreeding, leading to a lack of genetic diversity. Due to this, livestock animals cannot compete against ever-evolving parasites, bacteria, and viruses, making them perfect mixing vessels for infectious diseases that can one day jump from animal to human. Definitely, that raises some red flags about the current pandemic, right? The COVID-19 pandemic that we're in. 
But what do you have to say to people that think, oh, this is only a problem that happens in places like wet markets and nowhere near where Americans source their, for example, chicken? Yeah, good question. I'm pretty sure that many of us remember the last global pandemic, H1N1, from all the way back in 2009. Well, in February of 2021, the World Health Organization reported that another variant of influenza A, H5N8, was reported to have been transmitted to humans for the first time ever in human history. This occurred from a poultry farm in Russia where seven workers were infected. Although it was contained and the virus did not spread from person to person, it is only a matter of time before a disease arises from from these type of factory farms that has the potential to become a pandemic. That might sound quite depressing, but one sure-proof way to mitigate these detrimental effects is to transition away from our current meat-based food system. Fortunately, people have been exploring ways to make plant-based proteins more appealing to consumers for a long time, actually. We could go way back to ancient civilizations, but why don't we focus on the United States? Are you ready for a brief history of alternative proteins? I'm ready. Let's do it. We have to start with soy-based meat. You can find soy-based meat in restaurants now and probably in your local grocery store. But it started near Nashville, Tennessee, by Madison Foods back in 1922. Oh, this was around the prohibition of alcohol in the Roaring Twenties, right? Exactly, yeah. Thereafter, the great majority of meat alternatives would include soy as their main ingredient. That doesn't mean that vegetarianism itself was booming, though. In fact, vegetarianism in general wasn't trendy until 1971 at which point in the U.S. you would have been considered a hippie. This is when Francis Moore's bestseller, Diet for a Small Planet, hit the shelves. For all you book nerds, Diet for a Small Planet is considered the first major book to note the environmental impact of meat production. Francis argued for environmental vegetarianism. What is environmental vegetarianism? That's practicing a vegetarian lifestyle out of concerns over the impact of animal-based industries and animal products on the environment. Now, you have probably heard of seitan. Seitan is the protein from wheat. Specifically, it is cooked wheat gluten. Seitan was imported to the West from Japan right before the popularization of vegetarianism in the United States. The year was 1969. A couple of years later, in 1975, tempeh was brought into the U.S. by Indonesian-American farmers. What is tempeh, you ask? The following message is courtesy of Siri and Wikipedia. Hey Siri, what is tempeh? Tempeh or tempeh is a traditional Javanese soil product that is made from fermented soybeans. It is made by a natural culturing and controlled fermentation process that binds soybeans into a cake form. A fungus, Rhizopus oligosporus, is used in the fermentation process and is also known as tempeh starter. Thank you, Siri. Why, thanks. As I was saying, a business was created that industrialized this process of fermentation and made tempeh readily available nationwide in 1979. Uh, I have to stop you there. We haven't talked about the iconic veggie burger yet. Where does it come in? Hey, that's perfect timing, Ismael. 
We can't talk about plant-based diets without talking about the one and only veggie patty. According to the Smithsonian Magazine, the veggie patty revolutionized the vegetarian diet. But funny enough, veggie patty meant a hamburger with vegetables on top. <laughs> Gregory Sams changed all that in 1982. Gregory Sams is credited as the inventor of the OG veggie burger. Sams first made a meatless patty for his London-based restaurant called Seed. He'd make seitan by kneading flour under a running tap for a half hour. Then he flavored it with tamari and mixed it with a dookie beans and oat flakes and finally formed a patty out of it. Now that's some dedication, huh? Still, as of 1982, there were many advances to be made in the field of alternative proteins. Yes, just as there are businesses like Impossible Foods and Beyond Meat paving the way for alternative proteins on the food market, there are also organizations working to advance the exciting field of alternative proteins. One leading organization was founded by Bruce Frederick in 2016. This international nonprofit is called the Good Food Institute. We had the great opportunity of interviewing Amy Huang, the university research manager of the Good Food Institute. Amy has been an invaluable contact for the Alternative Protein Project at Stanford and in universities around the country. In this interview, Amy helps us understand the role of the Good Food Institute in advancing the alternative protein industry. How can university students get involved And why is a future with alternative proteins a brighter future for all? Hello, Amy. Thank you so much for speaking with us today. How about we start by giving our audience a little background about who you are and what the Good Food Institute does? First of all, thank you so much for having me.、I'm、really delighted to be here with you. My name is Amy Huang, and I'm the University Innovation Manager at the Good Food Institute. GFI is a nonprofit think tank that is laser focused on reimagining the protein supply. We work with scientists, policymakers, entrepreneurs, investors, the world's biggest food and meat companies,、um, to basically reimagine a world in which alternative protein products are the default. Great, and what do you do there? At GFI, I work with universities to build alternative protein ecosystems. Essentially, alt protein education and scientific research, and accelerate the pace of technological progress in the field. Yeah, we'll touch on universities and college students in a little bit. But first, why do you think, Amy, that alternative proteins is an area worth learning about? I could probably talk about this for seventeen days straight, but I will try to keep this as concise as possible. I really feel like I have stumbled upon the most important set of problems for us to be focusing on in our lifetimes. Right? We're talking about catastrophic climate change. We're talking about environmental devastation, biodiversity loss. The scarcity of of land and water, but that's just kind of the beginning,、um, and and there are so many other cause areas that intersect here as well. 
Definitely. I think there are many examples of inefficiencies in using animals for food, but can you give our audience an example, a quick example that comes to your head? Yeah, it takes nine calories in the form of soy, legumes, wheat, fed to a chicken to turn into a single calorie on the other end for human consumption. Um, when you talk about the cow or the pig, we're talking about like orders of magnitude of efficiency loss. So there's this big opportunity for us to free up a ton of land, a ton of our scarce natural resources and redirect them to feed a growing number of hungry people around the world instead of funneling our you know, precious few calories through animals. Now that we know a little bit more about the Good Foods Institute, a little bit more about your background and why alternative proteins is such a fascinating field, why don't we go into the definition of alternative proteins? I hear that there are three pillars, is that right? We define alternative proteins as direct replacements for conventional meat, egg, and dairy, but the production platforms for alternative proteins fall into three primary pillars. So there's the plant-based side of things, utilizing plants and analogs in the plant kingdom to biomimic the sensory experience of meat. There's the cultivated technology pillar, which is really focused on utilizing animal cells to construct meat from the cellular level. And then there's fermentation, which is utilizing microbes to produce protein biomass or to produce really precise ingredients and flavorings and enzymes to make better alternative protein products. So these are kind of the three production platforms that we see working together synergistically to power alternative protein products. Yeah, these three pillars sound fascinating. I'm wondering as part of the Good Foods Institute, you definitely have come across some amazing research happening in each of these three pillars. Has there been anything that is totally jaw-breaking for you that you can share with our audience? I think there are really exciting developments in all three of these categories. Um, the fermentation platform, for example, there's some really exciting work underway at Nature's Find, which is a, a Chicago-based startup. And they're really focused on basically using a novel fermentation process to take a microbe that they found at the bottom of a volcanic spring in Yellowstone National Park. That was part of a NASA commissioned project. That microbe just so happened to be 50% protein. And it happened to be a complete protein with all 12 essential amino acids. When you use this novel fermentation process, um, you can create meat-like sheets of fibrous textured protein, which essentially serves as biomass for alternative protein products. So I think that whole universe is incredibly cool. Obviously, Impossible Foods and a growing number of other startups utilize microorganisms as host factories producing precise ingredients like, like hemoglobin, which is what gives the Impossible Burger such a convincing taste and smell. So yeah, so many other exciting research projects. Julian McClemens Lab at UMass Amherst is doing some incredible sensory work. 
Glenn Gaudet at Boston College utilizing spinach, decellularized spinach as a scaffolding for cultivated meat. Um, yeah, there are so many opportunities, I think, to still get involved and, and to draw inspiration from pioneers in our field. It's incredible how alternative proteins can bring together so many different disciplines, right? And this relates to the role of universities. How are universities like Stanford advancing the field of alternative proteins? Yeah, such a good question. We are really just getting started, right? This field is seven, maybe 10 years into its existence, which means that we're really just at the beginning of building a brand new paradigm for feeding the world. And that means that there are so many opportunities and also so many challenges that lie between where we are today and, and where we'll need to be to actually feed the world with these novel food technologies. Some of the challenges include the pace of technological progress can be faster if we work together with our academic communities, with our scientists and engineers, and tackle these really foundational basic science questions and applied science questions about alternative proteins in an open access way. So can we get more academic research happening rather than having you know, startups tackle a lot of these questions? So that's one challenge is just, we need more scientific research happening. Another big bottleneck is that there isn't really a workforce that exists for the alternative protein field yet. So a lot of alternative protein startups are having trouble finding the right kinds of talent who are trained with the right skills needed to help create better alternative protein products. So those are two of the big challenges that I think are, are challenges students can kind of directly contribute to through their academic careers. I was hoping you could touch on the Alt Protein Project. I know we have a chapter here at Stanford. Could you explain the Alt Protein Project to some of our listeners that maybe don't know what it is? Yeah, I love this question. The Alt Protein Project is a new growing global student group community that currently spans 16 universities around the world and growing. The Alt Protein Project is all about viewing students as the critical puzzle pieces that we need to redefine the trajectory of our food system. A lot of college-age students, this was certainly true when I was back in college, don't really view themselves as the kind of catalysts for changing the world right there from their position within the academic ecosystem. And our program, the Alt Protein Project, is all about helping students understand how big of a role they play in transforming the academic landscape, shifting university priorities, so that we're building the kinds of courses and infrastructure that are really needed for the alternative protein field to succeed. I think this is a great moment if you could share some tips for Stanford students that are hoping to get involved in the field of alternative proteins. How could they begin? And perhaps if we have listeners from outside of Stanford, how could they get involved in the field of alternative proteins? There are so many opportunities for students to get involved. 
Um, for those based in the Stanford ecosystem, I would recommend joining the Stanford Alt Protein Project, which is one of our 16 flagship groups. They've been doing some remarkable work stimulating the research conversation on campus, leveraging Stanford's position as a thought leader in the world of academia to kind of boost the legitimacy of alternative protein science as a field that's worthy of intellectual exploration. They've been doing an incredible job of getting a course set up this semester. They launched a course focused on alternative protein science policy and, and business. It will likely be held in future semesters as well. So lots of opportunities for those of you based within the Stanford ecosystem. You're also right there in the heart of Silicon Valley where many alternative protein startups are based. For those of you outside the Stanford ecosystem, there are also so many opportunities to get involved. You can advocate for course development. You can reach out to a professor or department and share your excitement about alternative protein research. GFI has lots of open access resources that can help you figure out the best way to kind of help this field move along as a student. Those are some fabulous tips. Thank you so much, Amy. I would love it if you could close us off with your thoughts or hopes for the future of alternative proteins. What do you think is the future of it can be the Good Food Institute, the Alt Protein Project, or alternative proteins in general. <laughs> yeah, that's um, it's a big question. I think alternative proteins will one day be the default option, right? Our entire theory of change is that despite the fact that there's a growing amount of awareness that industrialized animal agriculture is harmful along you know, countless dimensions for human, animal, and planetary health, meat demand is skyrocketing. So just telling people to eat less meat isn't gonna work. Instead, what we have to do is we have to create products that taste just as good or better, that cost the same or less than conventional meat products, and that's where you're going to see this big paradigm shift unfolding. You know, the future of the Alt Protein Project comes into play. I do see the Alt Protein Project being a movement that touches every student in every college and university around the world. We have 16 phenomenal groups in Europe and the United States. I think we will in the next few years really expand our global reach so that we're touching um, South America, Africa, Asia, other parts of North America, and doing a really good job of making sure that underrepresented communities in STEM have a seat at the table. And I also feel really optimistic about what's ahead for the future of our food system if students are kind of at the center of the discourse. So I see the future of alternative proteins as one in which alternative proteins are ubiquitous, that touch every, you know, they touch every single corner of this planet, this like giant hurtling rock that we're on. I think the only way we're really going to get there is if all of us do our part.
That was Amy Huang from the Good Food Institute. You can find more information about the Good Food Institute at the links we provided in the description. Hey, Ismael, what did you learn today? I learned that our current food system is an existential threat to our safety due to the over-reliance on meat. Factory farms are not only destructive to the environment, but are a breeding ground for new pandemics to rise up. Certainly, we have also learned that alternative proteins in the United States have made great strides since their introduction in the early 1920s. Research and development in universities like Stanford will be key to developing the field of alternative proteins. Just as Amy reminded us a few moments ago, all of us have to do our part in creating a more healthy and sustainable food system for everyone, especially in this critical time. We hope we have sparked some new interests in you all, and maybe tonight you can see your plate a little bit differently. Thank you very much.